Our first Bible reading this morning is taken from Luke's Gospel and it can be found on the sheet uh, that you have with you. Luke 23, starting at verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. I've put as a heading for this the challenge of the cross. And uh, it's there for us in every generation. What Luke describes here is, of course, a very public event. Those who suggest that religion is just a private, personal affair have failed to grasp that the cross was for public viewing. Many witnessed the death of Jesus. And over some three years, many had seen him heal, and they'd also seen him restored, those influenced and even bound by the power of Satan. And each of the four Gospels gradually prepares us for these terrible final events. The response to Jesus, of course, because of his power to heal and his power to deliver those in bondage to the satanic, the response of people at that level had been phenomenal. But there was far less enthusiasm about his teaching over the kingdom of God, of repentance and faith in him. You see, he drew attention to himself. It was almost as if he believed himself to be the promised Messiah. And he taught with such authority. 
he challenged the official religious teachers of the day. And from early on, they together with the politicians plotted his death. And now he is to die. They have won the day. And in that final verse we heard read, we're told that as the people stood watching, the rulers even sneered at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Now a few of those watching are moved to tears. The tragedy, of course, is that neither they nor their leaders have understood the challenge of the cross. Yes, Jesus will suffer, and it will be a suffering involving excruciating pain. But that is nothing compared with what the future holds for those who reject the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Across the ages, most people have looked on, perhaps even sympathised with Jesus. Here, a good man, suffering such a terrible death, how can it be? And somehow every nation and every cultural group has been caught up in the decisions of its leaders and the easiest path always is simply to go with the crowd. Yet here also is hope. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Luke alone, of all the Gospel writers, records these words of Jesus. The years pass and move on. And in AD 70, as a matter of historic fact, the city of Jerusalem and its temple suffered major destruction by the Roman armies under Titus. Meanwhile, there was hope. There was time to turn back to God. We today in this land and across much of the English-speaking world face the same challenge of the cross. Of course, it's easy, with the benefit of hindsight, looking back, just to blame our leaders. We must, and we can, pray for them. And for ourselves, and those near and dear to us, that we do respond to the challenge of the cross. And we respond with true repentance and genuine trust in the Saviour. 
for it's not sympathy that he wants from us, but sincere faith that will sustain us. A prayer. And then a moment's silence to reflect as the Spirit of God guides us. It was your love, Lord Jesus, that caused you to be nailed to the cross. It was your love that held you there when you might have called for legions of angels. It was your love that pleaded for your murderers and prayed, Father, forgive them. Help us, most gracious Lord, to grasp something more of your love, to receive your forgiveness, and to learn to forgive others, even as we have been forgiven for your love's sake. Amen. Our second reading is from Isaiah chapter 52, on page 3 of your service sheet. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, 
and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. when we speak of the challenge of the cross, we're speaking about the symbol and not the reality that it stands for. And many of us realise that the first Christians were often ridiculed for choosing such a symbol to represent, as it were, their Christian faith. Even today, the wearing of a cross in a place of work can cause hostility and problems. But then, as now, we have our reasons for staying with the symbol of the cross. We refuse to discard it in favour of something perhaps less offensive to the society around us, because we have our reasons. Some 700 years before Jesus was born and through the prophet Isaiah, God made clear why the cross is so central to Christian faith. And for a few moments, I want us to reflect on three things, the humanity of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, and the divinity of Jesus. Now, to put it in its context, Isaiah 53 is the fourth of five songs in Isaiah about the work of a figure called God's servant. And the New Testament identifies him with Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, for example, we're introduced to a high-ranking Ethiopian who, as he travels, is reading from this very prophecy of Isaiah. And the Apostle Philip comes alongside him and sees that he doesn't understand what he's reading. And we're told in Acts chapter 8 and verse 35, then Philip, beginning with that very passage of Scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. And he points, first of all, to the humanity of Jesus. Verse 3. Here we have a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Verse 2 of Isaiah 53. His appearance was ordinary. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And for the most part, during his time here on earth, Jesus was despised and rejected, even by his family 
and his friends. I wonder when you're asked, as sometimes happened, what do you think of yourself? How's your life going? How are you doing? Do you perhaps think of yourself as just ordinary? If you do, do so remembering that Jesus was the greatest ordinary person ever. And if you're going through pressure and trouble and difficulty and attempted to assume really that no one understands, remember he carried your sorrows and was often marginalised. But Philip also spoke to the Ethiopian about the sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity that is the sin of us all. Now here in the West we belong to a generation that's been led to believe that yes, there is such a thing as sin or evil, but it's out there rather than in here, as Jesus himself taught us. Do you remember Mark chapter 7, verse 20? It's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. if we're confused about the nature of sin and evil and tempted just to see it as out there and not in here, we have enormous problems with what we see in society around us. For we find it even harder to accept that the bad things we do or allow to be done to others are in fact primarily deeply offensive to God. Don Carson puts it like this, the root problem, he says, is our rebellion against God, our fascination with idolatry, our grotesque de-godding of God. You see, we characteristically act as if we, not he, is the centre of the universe. But again, there is hope. And I love the way that old hymn puts it, because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. <coughs> so we're reminded thirdly of the divinity of Jesus. 
the verse that perhaps puts it magnificently is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. <coughs> Paul writes these words, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And then he goes on to add in the second part of that verse, he's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Authentic Christianity across the ages has always affirmed both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. And likewise said that when Jesus bore the cost of our forgiveness, it was God in Christ doing so. And that is the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the good news that we see in Jesus Christ. So let's reflect on it and rejoice in it. A prayer. Ever-loving Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. As we bow before the cross, we acknowledge the debt we owe. Ours was the sin he bore, Ours the ransom he paid, ours the salvation he won. Lord Jesus, accept our thanksgiving, and by your grace make us worthy of your love. Amen. The next reading is from uh, John's first letter, in chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. In the Church Bibles, it's on page 1226. 1 John 3, beginning at verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteousness, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know who, who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother.
So we speak about the challenge of the cross and we recognise that it's both personal and for us together, for each one of us individually, as well as for us as a nation, as a people, as those who live in this part of the world. And we can see, perhaps not fully, but sufficiently, that only Jesus, who was both God and man, could pay the price, could make the sacrifice. And if you look with me again at Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, you'll see something of the answer given by the prophet to the fact that it was accepted what Jesus did. In verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So to the question, is it really possible to speak of the success of his mission? The answer is yes, it is. Listen to Peter preaching at Pentecost and bringing together the facts that are before them. Jesus has died, but giving the reasons for his death. In Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 36. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And again, Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. See my servant who will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And this is the language that's used elsewhere in the prophecy of Isaiah of the very nature of God himself. Look 
if you wish, later at Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. So we celebrate on Good Friday, and even more so on Easter Day, the success of the mission of Jesus. Jesus is risen. He is exalted. He has conquered. And that's what the Apostle John is getting hugely excited about in his first letter, part of which we just heard read. And he's getting excited because the mission of Jesus was successful, and it was successful on two vital and fundamental accounts, and the one depends on the other. Look with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 3, the first part of verse 5. And the wording that John uses is, of course, significant. The mission of Jesus was successful, he says, because he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And that is fundamental. In your place and mine, he removed our guilt as sinners. In him, the Father is reconciled with us. But it doesn't stop there. Look also at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, where he repeats in a very similar phrase, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, if we were to be living in South America, and I digress, and I do it deliberately, and this were an indigenous community of people who are very well aware of the nature of satanic oppression, there would be a gasp, and they would understand that this was truly significant. Here in the West, of course, we've grown beyond these things. We can make our films, our television dramas, all with a hint of the supernatural and of the satanic, just to give us a bit of a scare. But, of course, we don't believe it. So it's hardly surprising that we find these words of John difficult. The reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the devil's work. Our society, by and large, likes to define its own brand of Christianity, and we've had politicians doing that for us in the last few days. And by implication, we like to define our own understanding of sin. And we forget that it's God who actually tells us what is right and what is wrong. 
and we also forget inevitably that all sin, whether we define it as such or not, if he said it's wrong, it's wrong. And that's deeply offensive to him that we should suggest otherwise. But as a consequence, we're surprisingly ignorant that alongside this terrible reality of satanic bondage which holds people in its power is the amazing reality that the power of Satan to do just that has been broken on the cross by Jesus. We forget, and it's to our loss, that the power of Satan was broken. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. And on the cross, Jesus dealt with both our guilt and also our bondage. And if our debt has been paid, and it has, and if our guilt before God has been forgiven, and it has, then Satan's hold over us has been broken. And we're no longer servants of Satan, as it were in his grip, responding to all that is evil out there and within, but we become servants, and the word in the New Testament is even stronger than that, slaves of Jesus Christ, whose power over us paradoxically brings us perfect freedom. So we have reason to praise God, our Saviour in Christ, for all that he's done for us. And of course, John then goes on in this and other parts of his letters to say, it's now possible actually to live a lifestyle of doing what is right. It's now possible to live a life of righteousness. And that, by the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit and because of the cross of Christ, is your calling and mine. Let's pray. Almighty God, loving Father, we sing the praises of your Son who died upon the cross but has now been raised and lifted high. We think on the anguish he endured, the sacrifice he offered, the triumph he achieved over sin, Satan and death. 
help us to live out our forgiveness and rejoice in our deliverance. Amen. The final reading is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 19. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus speaks three final words and sentences in quick succession before he dies. First, I'm thirsty. His great spiritual sufferings have taken their toll of him. Secondly, he called out again, as Matthew and Mark emphasize, and John here recalls, it is finished. And thirdly, we have the tranquil, voluntary, confident self-commendation as he returns to the Father in Luke's version in chapter 23 verse 46 of Luke's Gospel. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the middle cry I want us to focus on because it is a cry of victory and in the Gospel text it's just one word, tetelestai, and uh, it's in the perfect tense which means it has been and will be forever remain finished. Jesus has accomplished what he came into the world to do. And as he speaks and as we intertwine the gospel story across each of the four gospels, we know that as he spoke the curtain of the temple which for generations had symbolised our alienation from God, was torn in two from top to bottom. The sin barrier between us and God had been thrown down. God himself had opened the way for us to come back to him. Come back with me for just a moment to that situation of Philip explaining to the Ethiopian 
what Isaiah's prophecy was about and how it was fulfilled in Jesus. In Acts chapter 8 and the verses 36 to 38, we have these words, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water, why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot, then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. His baptism, of course, tells us that this man listening to the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah saw that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he turned to the Saviour. For he knew that Jesus had indeed died for him. And of course, we're here today because we know that Jesus also died for you and for me. That for you and for me, he has conquered Satan. So Satan no longer holds us bound if our trust like that of the Ethiopian, is in Jesus. In Jesus, for time and eternity, you and I find safety. Let's pray. O Saviour of the world, we praise you again for the victory of the cross and for your finished work. You have done for us what we could never do for ourselves and what we did not deserve you to do. And you have done it once and for all. Through your perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice, sin is forgiven. Satan is conquered. We are redeemed. And heaven is opened. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat>